0: Hello, and welcome to episode three of our podcast. I am joined once again by my lovely co-host, Jim. And Jim, how are you doing tonight?
1: Uh, I'm good, thank you.
0: And we actually have a little bit of a change of slate. So Sam won't be joining us this week and he'll be returning next week. But in his stead, we have our very first guest, the shrewdest of executives, Freddie.
2: And
3: Freddie, hey, how's it going? You- I'm good, I'm good. I didn't know that I was your um, your first guest. So that's an honor.
0: You are. I thought that you'd be a good first guest to have, because as many of our listeners probably know, last week New Zealand had their referendum. So we figured that our friend Freddie might not be very long for this world, since all the euthanasia uh, clinics are opening. So we thought. Right. We could I'm go not. Early.
3: I'm yeah. I'm not going to voluntarily go to one. But if the state wanted, they could get a psychiatrist to say that I did want to kill myself.
1: Um, this podcast and, is just the last, uh, a last squeeze of your hand before you go towards the light.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm, um, I'm, I'm feeling very, you know, I'm feeling like Dale from King of the Hill about it, that the, uh, the NZSIS, which is our secret, you know, our secret service have, um, they think my posts are too problematic. You know, so we're going right, to right. get a psychiatrist to say that he wants to kill himself. And, right. uh, you know, there's a good chance that this will happen.
0: At mm. well, least people will have your appearance on the show to remember you by.
3: Oh, I'm glad. Thank you for letting me bequeath some final words to the world. I'm. I'm. Uh, it's actually. Uh, it says a lot about New Zealanders that they uh, voted no to um, uh, legalizing uh, weed and voted yes to um, <laughs> to suicide. It's. It. I mean, it's. It's such a.
1: <laughs> it's the it's most Protestant a, thing I've ever heard.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: No half measures in this place. Yeah. No, you're either in or you're out.
3: <laughs> well, they want us to be out, apparently.
0: <laughs> was it close at all about the weed, or was it pretty overwhelming now?
3: Can't quite remember. I think it was something like 48% yes.
0: I'm trying to remember when I'm leaving here. I think it was two years ago now.
1: I think ours right. was two
3: years ago, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, congrats, guys. Enjoy it. Thank you. Oh, the, Thank yeah, you. I the, am. <laughs> wonderful.
0: Do you want to get into kind of what we're going to be talking about today?
3: Yeah, I thought I'd shut up so I could let you um, segue.
0: <laughs> um, so, do you kind of know like the premise of the podcast, Freddie?
3: Um, apart from talking about uh, weed and euthanasia, it's, uh, you mentioned something about genius and Wittgenstein.
0: Yeah, so we're reading this book, and the book started with a Wittgenstein quote, so that's kind of why we wanted to talk about it today. And Jim, did you want to read the quote for us?
1: <clears throat> this is uh, from by Elizabeth Anscombe in her introduction to Wittgenstein's Tractatus. So, he once greeted me with the question, why do people say that it was natural to think that the sun went round the earth rather than that the, the earth turned on its axis? I replied, I suppose because it looked as if the sun went round the earth. Well, he asked, what would it have looked like if it had looked as if the earth turned on its axis?" Unquote.
3: I love that quote. Um, like I, it? um, because it's, uh, it for me, it illustrates very clearly the uh, the way that it's very easy to shift people's perspectives on things in philosophy. It doesn't, philosophy doesn't have to be complicated to make a contribution. Is, is yeah. the main thing that I like about it. It's uh, because it's the um, it's an observation which is you know the product of a cultivated mind, but it's extremely simple. You can sort of feel the outlines of his philosophy of language in there because you start to dwell on you know the phrase "looks like." You know what does it what does it look like? It it sort of mirrors the Galilean perspective shift, except it it uh, you know ensconces that perspective shift. Uh, very firmly in a sort of an individual mind, rather than a broader scientific practice.
0: And I think that for Wittgenstein, the majority of philosophical problems were fundamentally problems of language, so that it is very easy to kind of get caught up in the ways that we phrase things, rather than the things in and of themselves.
3: There's that. There's that- I think the sort of naive view of language that everyone really, really wants to subscribe to, which is that the, uh, the language in the world is sort of a, a hand going into a glove, not even a hand going into a glove. They're, you know they're made for each other, that a sentence has a um, you know a concrete uh, reference in the world. And, and I guess that's pretty much what uh, the Tractatus was about, right? I think that's my understanding of it.' Yeah. It's almost giving kind of firm ground to that uh, that almost naive view. But doing it in a very strange way, I I get, I I have trouble with the uh, tractatus, I think it's um, probably a lot of bullshit gets written about it. But I I find it very difficult to understand the idea that the logical descriptions of the world are sort of reflecting something, you know, reflecting something in the world, and that all the possible sort of uh, formulations that we can logically have in a language will set set the limits of the world we're in. There's something sort of vaguely mystical about that because when most people have that okay i just want my language to correspond directly with something they're not having the kind of galaxy brain thought where it's like well if we can just um, formulate every sentence um logically if we can formulate all the basic logical sentences we've not only described the world but we've described all the possibilities (laughs) of the world and that's 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 quite fuzzy and most people don't have that but wittgenstein had that thought
0: He did. And I think it's very much something that was born out of his own, I guess you could say, dissatisfaction with the way that he himself was able to communicate his thoughts. I guess he was someone who had a stutter and who throughout his life felt that others weren't understanding what he was trying to say a lot of the time. And I think that that's definitely something that comes through in the Tractatus. Like trying to distill interaction and language down to these, like down to its constituent parts, I guess you could say.
3: Yeah, it's. I didn't. I actually forgot <clears throat> about the stutter thing. That's because uh, I, I know he said that um, he never really felt like he could express himself properly. Which you know, I'm sure we uh, all three of us have some sympathy there. You know, that feeling that you can't get something out. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, when an, I- when an idea resonates, it's more. There's, there's the sort of the resonance in your mind. There's the sense of uh, you know. There's a sentiment that. You know something has hit the mark somewhere and then you go on trying to express it and it turns out that you don't you can't and it's not necessarily just because you don't know the right word um something you know something stranger is going on i, I don't know the human mind is a funny thing
0: it is and i like that and, you uh, touched on i'm oh, sorry jim you can go ahead
1: oh yeah i was just gonna say that i had written down here that kind of i think Wittgenstein's relationship to moore's work here uh is I just had written the failure of language to convey certain sorts of concepts because Moore does kind of play with uh, language and what it can convey, kind of in this, um, in this, in this part of his work. And so I think that's kind of maybe why he's inc- interested in what Wittgenstein has to say about how, yeah, problems of understanding are, are language problems, not necessarily, ah, uh, yeah, problems of the phenomena they're trying to describe. Yeah,
3: it's um, like it's quite a, it's quite an elegant point. Actually, I mean, you know, it's, it's, um, what if, you know, when Plato was talking about the fort, like the beautiful, what if he was just, um, you know, it's a, it's like he was just trying to, he was talking about a noun and, uh, didn't realize that you had to describe the sort of the, 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 uh, the contexts in which that word would be used. Well, this is his later philosophy, I guess. Yeah.
0: I think Wittgenstein at one point said that you kind of view his philosophy as being the opposite of Socrates, because like while Socrates or Plato would say that there's some essential underlying form to all things that are beautiful, Wittgenstein would say that things are beautiful because they share many of the characteristics of beauty. Well,
3: later yeah, Wittgenstein yeah. is not necessarily. Is, is, of Wittgenstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's I guess that's like yeah, that's the family resemblance stuff, isn't it? Which is you yeah. know, a good way of. You know, good uh, metaphor for um, talking about the word uh, beautiful.
1: When you said Cohen's name, the only thing that I knew, the only thing that sprang to mind was Marxism without bullshit, but then that was such a weird thing to think that I assumed it was something I'd made up myself to describe him. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, he, he, does, he does really seem to have something in common with Wittgenstein and that he, like, enters this field and seems kind of frustrated with a lot of, like, what he just sees as noise and chaff. And yeah kind of baseless, formless, kind of, uh, I guess, philosophical play that he doesn't really have much patience for. Yeah, and Something
0: about and that's funny to me is that I'm reading the Ray Monk biography of him right now, and there's multiple instances in it where it's mentioned that Wittgenstein would convince other people that they shouldn't pursue a career in academia and should rather, like, do a real job, which is funny considering that he's a philosopher, but
3: yeah, and also funny considering he was, um, the, you know, from like the richest family in Austria.
0: Yeah. Did you want to tell us a little bit about the Wittgenstein family?
3: Oh, you probably you've been reading the biography. You know more than me. I just know like the, the main like the for, for me the big the big points are. Um, he knew like they were extremely cultured, extremely rich. His father was what was it, iron and ore, or iron and steel. Uh, yeah, iron
2: some, and
3: steel. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's he made he made uh, the family was phenomenally wealthy. Um, and he, Wittgenstein was considered um, probably the dumbest of his brothers and sisters who wanted to be like playwrights and and authors uh, um going uh, and that kind of thing. but um, he, he he ended up uh, going off and doing engineering. but also two of his brothers killed themselves. And I understand this was partly because their father didn't want them to pursue their, their passion, is that right?
0: I think that three of his four brothers killed themselves and I think it was partly because of the pressure that their father put on them. And also I think one of them was gay and didn't know how his father would take that, I guess.
2: Oh, right.
0: And uh... About the Wittgenstein family, like Freddie mentioned, they were enormously wealthy. I think I read that in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the only family that was more wealthy than them were the Rothschilds. That kind of that kind of gives you a scale of like the enormity of their wealth.
3: It's hard. To, it is genuinely hard to comprehend how wealthy some people are.
0: And oh, do you, know like in... you with, mm? do you know who he attended school with, Freddie? Do you know who he attended school with?
3: Oh yeah, Hitler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They even think there's a photo of Wickenstein and Hitler in the same class.
0: Yeah, I can't remember how old they were at the time, but they attended the same school in Vienna for, I think, if two years, maybe. Uh, Don't quote me on that,
1: though. The, the density of, like, social and intellectual life in, like, the later days of Habsburg-Vienna is one of those seeming, yeah, like, a very it. rare kind of world-historic ferment of just the amount of people. Like, Vienna kind of has this interesting path because, like, it, it industrializes pretty late. But it's got a really large, um, uh, a really large Jewish population compared to like every other European state, and they kind of all get centered in Vienna and are really kind of the, the most kind of loyal uh, population to that Habsburg Empire after everybody in the periphery it kind of was getting sick of it. Um, and it's yeah, but just like the, you know, the the, the various cross pollinations and stuff that you get in the kind of later days of these. Like really highly educated, kind of idle classes that were more interested in high culture and opera than like running water and electricity. Um, yeah, and, and because like, of the nature of the, the empire, it could all
3: speak like, yeah, yeah, sorry to sorry to cut you off,
1: oh, no, just yeah, yeah, it's an incredibly diverse empire it finds itself at the center of everywhere and like puts such a high premium on on high culture that it becomes a uh, yeah, an, an overflowing cauldron of that, even as it falls behind everybody else and things like you know industry or actually having a modern sustainable state structure or anything like that <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah yeah and all the all the sort of the idle intellectuals you were talking about they all could speak like six different languages just because yeah. of the nature of the empire
1: yeah it's just very i hate to like essentialize but it feels like this kind of very catholic vague disinterest in the actual like day to day um kind of the the grind that we associate with like major industrial northern cities and just just Kind of this, yeah, this really high premium on arts and culture, where yeah, you would just kind of show up for work at some government ministry at like ten and work for like a few hours and go home drunk and then spend the rest of the day at the opera. Like it was very much.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost like kind of like Florence during the Renaissance. Uh, yeah. Just a lot of just a lot of time being dedicated to perfecting these um, you know, the arts that uh, previously had been. Out of people's reach because life is such a miserable slog.
2: Yeah.
0: For some of our do listeners, do you have a favorite? Do you want to toss no, out no, some you
2: names?
0: I was going to say, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Vienna during this period, did you want to like toss out some names of people who were? Oh, of,
3: yeah. Adolf oh, Hitler, no. would
1: yeah, <laughs> Hitler, would, Hitler would be one. Yeah, Hitler would be one. Freud would probably be. Uh, kind of the number one, but like Gustav Mahler and from that area in the same time. And, uh, yeah, you got Sheila. Yeah, I think, I think um,
0: the Wittgenstein family sort of, Yeah, in the Free
1: world one days, I think Oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah, I yeah. Sheila, that's right, yeah. Yeah, well, and pretty much any, like, Sheila was from the, Sheila and Mahler were from, like, the, the Czech lands from Bohemia, which had a large German-speaking and, and Jewish population at that time, so also, like, Kafka would have spent time in Vienna. Uh, Trotsky, I think, spends much of the time before the First World War in Vienna.
2: Rilke, um, I believe.
1: Yeah, it's... Uh... Excuse me? Rilke,
3: I love Rilke.
0: Yeah. He's
3: I think. I, the... we, are you talking about the post?
0: Yes. Wittgenstein also gave him money to continue with his poetry after he received his inheritance from his father.
3: It's a, a very old world. It feels like an old world generosity. You know what I mean? Like... Um, the bourgeois, like the bourgeois hate giving money away. Um, yeah, but like there, there are you know areas in the aristocracy where it's I think it's right. easier for them to throw out people who who are um you know who who are sort of super generous. I, I yeah, like you I
1: said, that that's a good Renaissance Italy metaphor, right? It's kind of this noblesse oblige where they see it as like part of their social role is supporting people like this.
3: Yeah, it's kind of like
0: people are doing <laughs> like support podcast patreons.
3: That's yeah, right. yeah, that's right. <laughs> and you and look at the look at the wonderful boon for humanity that kind of generosity has created.
0: Right? Yeah,
3: <laughs> it's it allows Amy Therese to do her thing.
2: That's right. Uh, yeah. Oh.
3: yeah, I'm not allowed to talk about her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went to Vienna. I visited Vienna. I went to. Um, I've actually. Uh, I went. I've been to Vienna twice. So I, I don't know how that happened, but I saw an Egon Schiele exhibition and. Um, it was uh, it was an exhibition alongside a Tracy Ehrman. If that's her name. Is that even I can't even remember if I've got her name. Tracy I sometimes
0: Eamon. Yeah. I know who you Emin.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was exhibited Eman, yeah, Eman. I call her like Ehrman, I think, just because it's close to Vermin. Um, and I think her art is Vermin art. <laughs> and uh, anyway, she was exhibiting some drawings and um Underneath the the main exhibit, they they were sort of meant to be exhibited alongside each other. And she she wrote these really fucking self indulgent essays about what an influence Sheila had on her. And I look at the Sheila um, works, and they're sort of like really they're gorgeous. And the and the shit that and her stuff was just like the shit that you would um like a, a someone with a severe mental illness would draw.
0: It's stuff that people mm. share on Tumblr. I think is a good description of it.
3: Yeah yeah yeah. Exactly, it's something that like a mentally ill person would draw about the murders that they're imagining. It that, it that kind of it? It feels like that kind of psychic mess. And it was just so funny, you know, just that this. You know, I don't want to use the term degenerate art because that has bad connotations. But you know, I, it's, I there's there's a little part of me that wants to like take all that to put. There was a part of me that wanted to pull it off the wall and just throw it on a bonfire. A very <laughs> very totalitarian instinct, um, <laughs> but. Uh yeah, it, it felt like it was defacing the art that was being exhibited alongside. She is not a genius. She's not a genius. She's an example of someone who's not a genius.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like try to have an open mind about modern art and stuff, but yeah, I definitely get that sense from a lot of it as well. Even though I'd like to see the beauty in it, I guess I find it harder too than with a lot of older art.
3: Yeah. It's it, it, I mean, modern art seems to change pretty fast as well. I, It's—I I imagine that it would be sort of embarrassing to, um, you know, to hold up Tracy Emin as a as an influence these days if you're a, if you're a modern artist. I don't know. That's just—I could be wrong about that. But um, you I'm know, for a to while to... it was dominated.
0: Oh, sorry, you go ahead.
3: I was just gonna, just that you know, art for for a while seemed to be dominated by. Um, you know, people with philosophy degrees from, you know, an English an English university. You know, like people who went to like birkbeck
1: Right, you're talking like work. the kind of late '90s, early 2000s strange period of like British cultural hegemony with like the Damien Hursts and stuff of the world.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just people who would just people who had read the kind of people that would have made like Wittgenstein pick up a you know a poker and just fucking right. and beat them over the head.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you want to tell us the Wittgenstein poker story For our listeners who may not know it
3: Oh, I, I can't, You know, I, um, I, I like it whenever I read it But it, it seems inconsequential to me So I always forget the details But I think G.E. Moore Was it with was was it, was it, Do you remember who, it was, it was who he was Karl threatening? Popper.
0: It was Karl Popper
2: Karl Popper, sure.
3: right, right Oh, okay Maybe that's why I'm, I'm a little skeptical of it sometimes Because I feel like Popper is a fucking liar but no, it's almost certainly true, and it fits in with his character. Um, Wittgenstein was getting really, really heated. Um, I think it was an argument about uh, about rules, social rules, uh, and I can't remember, um, you know, the, the exact details. But at one point, Wittgenstein gets like real pissed off, and he picks up a heater and is like brandishing at him, and, and he's like, "Give me an example of a rule or something like that." You know, like if you're if it's I, want I, want, I just explain it, explain like a rule to me. And and um, Popper was like, Well, it one a rule could be don't threaten visiting academics with um with pokers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, th- this apparently chased him, um, chased uh, Wittgenstein and he put it down and did not kill Cal Popper, which is a pity because <laughs> I think we would have been better off without Cal Popper,
1: yeah. And if I recall, Karl Popper is one of the people who ends up uh. Uh, a part of the like something that comes up in like Alan Moore's work a lot is his theory of uh, his theory of time, as um, kind of uh, one's kind of takes the view that it's one solid four-dimensional block. I guess is I understand it as opposed to the view that things in the past and things in the future are less real than things in the present.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, I don't know. Thinking about this sort of stuff makes me laugh just because it's it's so. <laughs> i don't know it's not the stuff that you can normally it's it's not the stuff that it's just it's not easy to think about this stuff
1: no no and but yeah. and Karl popper has a reputation of this that basically amounts to well that that seems really weird and bizarre that <laughs> doesn't feel like the way things are and that seems to be what kind of the time debate as i can tell boils down to is just oh that seems kind of ridiculous that's not how i experience time and, <laughs> um, yeah yeah
3: yeah
1: that uh, yeah is i think popper's popper's critique of that yeah i don't know if uh, wittgenstein ever wrote about time though it doesn't seem to be what he's interested in
3: i think Something wittgenstein I just felt like yeah actually no I, i'm not gonna speak no you go i finished i
0: was just gonna say that the popper story also reminds me of i guess kind of the reason that i feel that wittgenstein is popular because although His philosophy does definitely have its merits. I think a lot of it is just because of Wittgenstein the figure. Because he was a very very eccentric person. I think that anyone who met him would agree with that. And (laughs) I guess I should talk about what he did after publishing the Tractatus. So after he published it, he kind of figured that he had solved all of the problems of philosophy with it. So there was really no point in him continuing to pursue it. So he basically just left and he started teaching at elementary schools in rural Austria instead. Yeah, and like, that's he, kind of a funny thing for someone to do. I think like just to decide that you've solved all the problems that can be solved. And...
3: Yeah, it's cool because it's, uh, he'd gotten to a very coveted position. You know, he'd, he'd entered almost by accident, an extremely rarefied academic circle that a lot of people were sort of striving and struggling to get into and would normally fail you know you can't just go up to Bertrand Russell and be like i, I you know i i am i can you explain mathematics to me uh, <laughs> and then have him call you a genius like a week later um, and and like but when he we, you know when he'd satisfied himself that he you know he got everything out of it he could he just he left it didn't even occur to him that maybe he should stay you know he we we would say he didn't give a fuck about clout um <laughs> I guess is, is the way to put it Wittgenstein is
1: that uh, Wittgenstein is that Eric Garner tweet of uh, "Explain your values to me now."
3: Oh <laughs> yeah, <laughs> academic <laughs> strategy there. I don't think I don't think Wittgenstein had the same attitude towards women. Yeah, I don't yeah. I don't think he would have been. From, I think Wittgenstein would have been the last person in the world to lay his life down for a woman. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely
1: get that sense. Uh, C, uh, CBC, you had that. Uh, uh, Excerpt you shared from the biography of somebody just recording in their diary how difficult he was to talk to.
3: Yeah, there's... he would apparently sit in just total silence uh, during his seminars yeah. for a long time.
0: Yeah, and just like staring at his hand or hitting, hitting himself on the back of the head when he said something that he thought was nonsensical. And that's something that people have noticed. Like a very stressful
1: guy to be around.
0: Oh, there was one anecdote where. Russell was talking about how Wittgenstein came to his room and was just pacing up and down the length of it for a couple of hours. And Russell asked him, are you thinking about logic or your sins? To which Wittgenstein replied, both.
3: That's one you can put in the bank.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think like, Wittgenstein, I feel like this. all this, you know. of course, the way genius is, I don't know how recently it's been understood this way, but it's kind of, goes hand in glove with like eccentricity and so I think this is definitely kind of who he becomes the thinker is because he does have this this uh mystique of the kind of eccentric genius I feel like that colors uh kind of like the the modern and like postmodern way we see genius is like somebody who's just so smart somebody yeah, exactly. with really high <laughs> IQ. So like and like Einstein' our modern genius right not like a Leonardo or a Byron or something we definitely this think of yeah we we wittgenstein reflects like our modern notions of what a genius is somebody who just uh not just sees things differently or sees things even originally but just like sees them better and in finer detail than anybody else can
3: absolutely yeah and and can somehow convey those finer details in metaphor like so much of his writing is just metaphorical and uh, that is that is that's interesting because you can't you know you can't it's actually very difficult to explain how metaphor works as a way of you know Comparting ideas. There's actually, you know, the modern Wittgenstein would be a, a, a philosopher called Donald Davidson who, um, who I, well, we won't discuss him. I, I mean, I won't try and make you discuss him, but he, he, um, he has a very interesting paper on metaphor. Where he explains that metaphors don't mean anything other than the actual words. Um, they just metaphors mean literally what they say they are. They couldn't possibly mean anything else. But he, he hmm. sort of makes that point in an interesting way. But genius, I think, is an interesting example of, um, you know, its it's It's a word that I think Wittgenstein and you know his you know his his students would have probably had a good you know a good time discussing because it, I think it illustrates one of the basic points in his philosophy quite well, because especially when you uh, associate genius with eccentricity, it, it's almost as if you've noticed a um, you know a car we notice a correspondence between people who we would tend to call you know genius and eccentricities. Um, and we get uh, and a lot, and we get sort of get the idea in our head that, um, eccentricity and genius go hand in hand, uh, and that when we say uh, genius, we're almost also saying something like um, sort of slightly odd. Um, but there's no essence. You know, the point is there's no when we have there's no essence uh, that the word genius has independent of the the sort of the language game you're playing when you use it. Yeah, and uh, I think that that's. It's a. It's a um,
0: any resemblances, because all the people that we consider geniuses, I don't think you'd be able to offer a description that encompasses or that includes all of them in that. But through different ask, through isolating different aspects of genius, we're able to still talk about them in a way that's coherent to everyone involved.
1: Yeah, yeah and absolutely. could you guys uh, go a, a little bit more into um, family resemblances? Uh, I, of course, know exactly what they are, but I'm, you know, there might be some <laughs> people out there who, who don't. or Would like that explained a little bit more. Yeah. I was just about to say that we should probably ex- explain what that um, what that
3: is. the, the, the idea is as I understand it and've um, it's so much gets written about this that uh, I think it's hard to keep it a, a, Some it's it's simple, but weirdly hard to keep straight. But uh, the idea is that when we use a word um, like genius, it's not describing uh, one uh, one thing. There's no one property that we can call. Um, uh, genius. We we the word takes its meaning, um, by yeah by referring to lots of different overlapping characteristics. There they, uh, so Wittgenstein's example is a game. He says look at the uh, you know look at checkers, look at solitaire, look at cricket, look at football. Uh, we call them each of these we will call a game. But if we examine exactly what these things are, we won't find any one property that links them all. All we have are a bunch of sort of vague family resemblances between these things. So, so, so the word picks out a resemblance. It, do, it doesn't pick out, um, you know, the essence of something. It's uh, in the way and we could, might think that the word cup picks out the essence of cup.
0: And you can see this like within people's families, like all members of a family won't necessarily look the same. But two members might have the same nose and two members might have the same eyes. And so that's kind of yeah. where the term gets its name.
3: Exactly. When you look at someone, when you look at two people who resemble each other as well, they could resemble each other a lot or they could only vaguely resemble each other. But when you're looking at them, you're not seeing some third thing that is the resemblance there's no there's there's, there's uh you will have say the mother and you'll have the daughter and you'll notice the resemblance but you're not you're not noticing some additional property
0: yeah
3: which we can say is the resemblance um and i, I think this that you know uh, noticing that is shows us the uh you know why people thought w- Wittgenstein was was uh was was important um yeah I oh, know it's a kind of observation that sort of undermines a lot of assumptions that people have about we we we're sort of caught up trying to find the essence of a of a word. and um, perhaps we need to just instead of looking for the essence of the word you know out there, we have to analyze the contexts in which words are being used, the game, you know the roles, the roles by which the word is being used.
0: Um, yes, I think that that kind of enca- encapsulates the shifts in Wittgenstein's thinking from the Tractatus to his later work. And there's actually an anecdote I think about a lot that isn't necessarily about him or his philosophy, but I think that captures the trajectory of his thinking very well. So he was walking with someone when he was visiting Cornell, and the topic of John Henry Newman came up, and John Henry Newman being the Anglican theologian and priest who later in his life converted to Catholicism, But Wittgenstein and this person were talking about miracles and Wittgenstein said that when he was younger, he would have considered Newman's belief in them to be insincere, but that he didn't think that any longer. And the person asked what he meant and by means of clarification, he said that when you're in the city, streets are nicely laid out and when you drive, there is traffic lights and there are rules, but when you leave the city, there are no rules and no lights and nothing to guide you and that it's all woods. And when you eventually return to the city, you might feel that the rules are wrong and that there should be no rules.
3: And so Uh, that's real nice. That's a nice anecdote.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. But it reminded me of, I guess you compare the city to kind of his thinking during the Tractatus period where he was very concerned with. I guess the academic world and. The kind of logical inheritance that he he's picking up from Frege and Russell and working within the confines of this thought, I guess you could say. But then he later on he realized that what's the point of all of these rules when you want to actually see things as how they're being used in the world, like in a real sense, if that makes sense.
3: Yeah, yeah, so the um, yeah, no, it does. The I think the the, the metaphor that's um, well, the way the, the the difference between the Tractatus, the early work, and Um, philosophical investigations which is the later work which was said to have you know contradicted or refuted um the track the tractatus is then the tractatus wittgenstein is operating with um a picture metaphor he wants to know how uh he thinks that the language we use is is something like a a picture of, of of the world not not individual words but they're um their concomitants, their, uh, the way they you know the way they hang together, you know the structure yeah. of a sentence um, mirrors the structure of the world in the same way that a picture will will mirror some structure of the world. And I wonder if Wittgenstein would have said that abstract art is just simply not art, or uh, uh, well, not a picture, not a picture. He would say you would call it art. He'd say it's not a picture, I guess. But um. The, the philosophical investigations he treats language like a tool. It's something that we use. It's a human activity, and it's a human activity like all human activities, which has rules because we're just the kind of creatures who devise rules for ourselves. And to understand the way we use language, we have to understand the rules. But of course, that's complicated because, um, and 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 yeah. So it, well, to get back to the, the tool metaphor, it's a, um, it's 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 something that we 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 use because it's useful in a certain contexts, and we have to understand yeah. the context. Right? Um, and so this is where you get the idea of um, speech speech, as uh, spe- uh, a deed, uh, speaking to speakers to do a deed, to, to speakers to act. It's, it's acting, which is kind of one of those <laughs> ideas that I think you sort of have to let percolate a little bit. But it's a very humane, it's a very, I, find it, I think it's a very humanist philosophy. I, some people find it uncomfortable because they think it's um, nihilistic. Well, not nihilistic, but, you know, it, it's, 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 uh, that, that we, I think it makes some people feel a little bit trapped um, that, you know, all we're ever going to do is just, um, you know, act in accordance with um, the particular rules that make up the particular language game we're in. And there's no way of getting outside it. Uh, And this, I think this is troubling for some people because um, especially those who are quite into the first word, the tractatus, which was taken by, you know, the logical positivists to be, a way, you know, the the way they were going to make philosophy scientific. Um, It's just we're going to find out what the logical descriptions of the world can be.
0: I think that that's something that kind of frustrated Wittgenstein, too, that it had been taken up by the positivists in this way. Because I think there is definitely, as you mentioned briefly, a mystical undercurrent to it that I think you kind of have to take into account when you're thinking about the Tractatus. Because when he's talking about it, he talks about how it contains both everything that is contained with within the work and everything that isn't, and of these two, he says that the latter is much more important.
3: I find the mm-hmm. tractatus impossible to understand. I, I, <laughs> I think I've got the, you know the very very bare bones of it, but it's it's I just I don't really I can't make yeah, it. So the
0: logical form of the truth function is keyboard smash. Basically,
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: but-
0: and it's not a very long work either, but it's very dense, and just the structure of it is very unique, I would say.
1: He was incredibly young when he wrote that, right?
0: I can't remember the exact yeah. age, but he he's pretty young.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's interesting that he kind of takes all those ideas as such a young man, kind of into war with them, Into war with him, rather. And they kind of seem to percolate there. And it's kind of, I guess, interesting how little that experience seemed to seems to affect anything he'd planned on doing or any of the ideas that he had. It's yeah, kind of yeah. it's so funny to think that like World War One, it's of course, it's just like, a, you know, in an Alan Moore metaphor, would it, it be that like it's the, you know, the 25 the story squid being teleported into New York City, right? It destroys everything and it throws everybody, <laughs> all these kind of intellectuals and artists and philosophers of Europe you know yeah. uh, they feel that so much of what they've been doing is like such a just a, a sick joke after we're done essentially yeah and yeah, then yeah. except wittgenstein who just keeps trundling along on his kind of uh yeah on the roots of the logical philosophic is seemingly kind of unfazed
3: yeah it's um yeah it's funny he doesn't seem like a guy um who had ptsd well maybe you did i mean actually. How much of his eccentricity would have been, you know, might have been influenced by that? It's hard to say. Um, well, maybe it's not.
0: Something that stuck out to me when I was reading about it was that a moment that I guess was very influential for him when he was away at war was that at one point he went to a bookstore. And the only book that they had there was Leo Tolstoy's The Gospels in Brief. And so he read that and I guess that impacted him a lot.
3: Oh, that's right. Yeah, he was quite. He carried that around like a Bible.
2: Yeah, yeah that was the,
3: the that. interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'll I'll tr- I'll make it quick because I want to hear what you have to say. But um, sorry, my see my my podcast manner has been trained by um Love Wisconsin and Sumis, where <laughs> just everyone talks over each other, <laughs> which means maybe I wasn't the best first guest to have. But um, but those those clowns <laughs> those those clowns all talk at once and. Uh, <laughs> It's sort of imprinted on me. The, oh, uh,
1: I love it where it's just six people trying to talk at once, and then it's like a half an hour of just teasing out one after the other who was actually trying to say something. Yes, one it's of my favorite things episode.
3: about it. Exactly, it's just it wouldn't be yeah. the same without it. But yeah, the um, uh, Wittgenstein, uh, where he was in a prisoner of war camp um, at the end of the war, and uh, there was um, it was the the, the uh, conditions they were pretty brutal, and I think because it was an Italian prisoner of war camp, and you just, they did not give a fuck they They didn't really care what happened to their to their prisoners. They didn't really know what to do with them. It was just a bunch of guys getting typhus um, sitting around a, a right, close no wire. yeah. and um I, I, I can't remember if uh, they allowed Wittgenstein to go home early or if his family arranged to get him out of there. but he he, I mean, he his family
0: arranged that.
3: yeah. Um, but he did the John. He was uh, he John McCain's, he he John McCained it. He refused to go. He refused to leave, I think, until um all wow, of his soldiers had uh, been repatriated. Oh yeah, yeah. He cared very, very deeply um, for his uh, for the soldiers he led.
1: the The late um, Austrian and like kind of yeah, the, the the later Austrian Empire into kind of the First World War is interesting in that it's like a it's one of the armies where like a lot of the greatest war heroes are are Jews, which isn't so much. They're basically kind of the last imperial patriots on a lot of different fronts. After everybody's splintered off to either kind of fight for their own, uh, you know, Balkan ethno state or for Ukraine or for wherever else, the people that are really actually feeling the "Long Live the Emperor" stuff are often like, yeah, the population that came from like Vienna, that's interesting. Grown up in, yeah, maybe,
3: yeah, maybe a lot of Jews sort of sense that things would get very bad for them if. Uh...
1: Absolutely, I mean, historically, you know, it's better to have an emperor.
3: It's like, yeah. where did all the Nazis learn their anti Semitism as well? Like, Hitler, like they all learned it in, 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 in Austria and Vienna, in particular. I mean, it was, yeah. yes, it was the, the home of Freud, but it was not just the home of Hitler. It was like the, the intellectual mecca of anti Semitism, yeah. which is the Austrians downplay. The Austrians like to downplay that. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, I think it was Hitchens, of all people, had some line about like Austria and has done a great job of convincing the world that. Uh, Hitler was German and Beethoven was Vietne- was Viennese or something like yeah. that. <laughs>
3: yeah, there was a funny incident where I think either uh, uh, an author or a philosopher won a Nobel Prize, an American, but he, he was he came from an Austrian family and he was Jewish, and the Austrian government was like, "This is a this is also a Nobel Prize for Austria." Uh, this is, you know, this is an Austrian winning a Nobel Prize. And he got real angry because his parents had fled Austria because they were driven out by anti-Semitism. And so he was like, you can't don't, just... <laughs> he, was, he got very fucking angry about this. I, I'm just trying to remember his name. Um, I'm sure it's easy to look up. Do you, Jim, do you have a favorite uh, Austrian uh, or Viennese... Or from that period of Viennese history, like an intellectual or an artist who you're fond of.
1: Oh, um, that's a good question. I I like me some some Sheeta, but I think he was. I guess he was. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess you could put him in in that ferment. But uh, maybe um, maybe Mahler is uh, the, the... Mahler is amazing. Yeah, 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 he's really. I was really onto something.
3: There's some. There's I've, some funny. He he was very devi- he was divisive. I, I I don't really know enough about music to understand the theoretical disputes that. that... Me either. Not a word. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think um, someone accu- like there were people who just accused him of copying Brahms.
1: Right. Which yeah. Well, I don't actually, really was understand. It, was it Brahms that uh, that uh, Wittgenstein said was the the last worthwhile composer the, or something? Is yeah. that a fact?
0: That was that was oh, Jim, you actually yeah. said something that I thought was interesting when we were talking a couple of days ago, because we were talking about why I like Bach and why you don't. And you said that you don't like Bach because he feels like the Tractatus of composers, which I thought was um, popped. <laughs>
2: yeah, it. uh,
1: it's just the kind of overwhelming like internal consistency and uh, everything is just just so everything's just perfect. But and, one's um, one's
3: music and one's philosophy. I mean, I think we've got to just sort of acknowledge the limited metaphor here. Um, I
1: uh, well, you know, I maybe for anybody else, um, you might have to, but I think I, I think I really nailed it there. So um, <laughs> the, <laughs> I yeah. don't know. I, I
3: understand. I do understand. There's there's understanding.
1: <laughs> Philosophers' objectives change like composers' objectives do. Right? Even <laughs> Bach to Brahms would have been after the Mahler would have been after wildly different results from their audiences, so it's something uh, that I was thinking
0: about with regards (laughs) to how I guess language doesn't necessarily have the capability to talk about things like art and more lofty subjects, as Wittgenstein would have said, is that you can't really talk someone into liking a particular composer or a particular artist. like, It either resonates with you or it doesn't, it feels like. Like I know yeah, that you know the, at a level, like how talented Bach is, and how, like how much skill that requires, but it still doesn't resonate with you in the same way that Mozart does, for example.
3: This is why a lot of people like Hume. He was the, um, at least you know, one of the earlier you know, European philosophers to uh, you know make the claim that that reason is subordinate in some way to to our emotions. But he did it, you know. He did it before the Romantic tradition, so he was he was doing it in a um, in a, in, a, in a in a more he was he was pursuing that thought in a more kind of like hard nosed, almost scientific way. Anyway, I'll I'll abandon that thought, the Hume thought, because I feel like it's going to. Uh, you had to cut me off when I was talking about my thesis, and I don't want to make Jim have to do that again. Who would you guys? Okay, we've got the Wittgenstein genius. Who, what, what, who would you guys put forward as an example if a genius in a different mold that you um, that you might esteem?
0: Like my <laughs> conception of genius, I think, would be best captured by Blake.
3: Is this because you value Blake's work very highly, or because you think that there was something about Blake's mind that? Uh, you know embodied a certain kind of genius
0: i think a lot of it for me was that it feels like he was very ahead of his time and he had a very singular vision that he was committed to even though that this even though this didn't necessarily get as much traction as he would have liked it to he still was very Yeah.
2: yeah
0: you might know this freddie but there's this rilke quote that i like a lot and It's in his piece to Ibsen, the Norwegian playwright. Here's the Rilke quote about Ibsen. Young man anywhere, in whom something is welling up that makes you shiver, be grateful that no one knows you. And if those who think you are worthless contradict you, and if those whom you call your friends abandon you, and if they want to destroy you because of your precious ideas, what is this obvious danger, which concentrates you inside yourself, compared with the cunning enmity of fame later? Which makes you innocuous by scattering you all around.
3: That is that is gorgeous because, and you know, one of the one of the things that we have for appreciating advice like this that you may not have had in a previous age is that reflecting on how it's different from the absolute mindless shit. You know, the kind of the um, the inspirational, motivational stuff that gets. Shared a lot in quote form, uh, especially on the internet. Yeah. Which really, at the end of the day, is just um, you know just like drick. Uh, the, the, the 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 sort of like the nonsense that you know the words that Wittgenstein thought were just like completely meaningless emptiness uh, in his in his early work. Um, this this um, this sounded substantial, and uh, it's one level we can appreciate that it's not mindless drick.
0: There's another Shelley quote that I think about a lot, too, with regards to this. Have either of you ever read A Defense of Poetry?
3: Uh I no, not. But I, I understand it's very good.
0: It is. It's not too long, either. I definitely recommend that. But in it, at one point, he's talking about Dante, and he refers to his works as being a burning atom of inextinguishable thought. And although many, like, covered in the ashes of their birth, they're still pregnant with the lightning, which is yet to fend. Which has yet to find a conductor, so that's something that's like very, I think, kind of central to my notion of genius.
3: Yeah, and it's 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 a good conception of genius because the if if lightning doesn't find a conductor, it's not you know it's it's chance in a sense. Well, in fact, how would that be? In what sense would that just be?
1: Well, I mean, I think I mean, like lightning's role as genius is. Uh, Alan Moore will later write about that, as we'll see in a future episode, but I think kind of in these, like, especially pre-modern notions of genius and artistic inspiration as being, like, a result of a special relationship with the divine, I think lightning is kind of uh, a metaphor for genius and that, you know, uh, like a moment of realization because it's it's something that's come from outside of you, right? It's something that somebody's been endowed with that yeah. might as well mm-hmm. have fallen from the sky. Uh,
3: and it comes from the natural world, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't come from, it's not like God. it's not the, you know, exactly. of the Holy Spirit. It's yeah, not, you, it's, you, you wonder whether you can have a concept of genius really in a, in a very deeply Christian culture.
1: Yeah. I uh, have to work with some lightning struck stuff sometimes. And I think to myself often that if I had lived back then, I would think it was ridiculous not to worship the sky too, because <laughs> just like the, the effect that that must've had psychologically on the, people who didn't understand it at all must have been tremendous and you would have seen your relationship with the divine as yeah being random pe- people being picked out seemingly at random to deliver a shock of some kind be it artistic yeah. or otherwise so to see was that-
0: of kind of the rise of the genius as a figure because i feel like it was kind of a reaction to i guess the project of enlightenment nationalism like removing some of the divinity and mysticism from the world so I feel like mm. genius is very much something that exists in the relationship between a figure and the public. And I think that it gave people kind of an outlet for this. I guess you could say divine spark, like this people who had something that was more than just the regular, you know?
3: It, it, it seems like something which is very evident in certain people. Um, they are marked out by it uh, in a, in, a, in a very vivid way. But it's hard to say exactly what it is that is marking them out. It's it's very hard to get clear on. You you sort of you sort of perceive it, but it's very hard to to make sense of it. So I think okay. genius, I mean, discussing genius in the context of Wittgenstein is a very good, you know, it's a good it's a good thing to do because it illustrates the need to take the word and examine the way the word is being used very closely instead of trying to yeah. find the essence of genius.
0: And something about when you asked me who I would consider a genius too, is that? I think for me, I value artistic and creative output more than other forms of knowledge, which is why I would say Blake is my quintessential idea of a genius. But I was talking too much and I didn't ask you guys who you would say was a genius if you had to pick one person.
1: Uh, LeBron James.
3: Um. <laughs> <laughs> didn't he die in a helicopter craft recently?
1: No. Don't be I, silly. I, uh, I, uh, the only
3: American sport north american sport i'm
1: sorry like you know can't Ooh,
3: okay. <laughs> that i follow is baseball
2: oh yeah
3: but i do know
0: that
2: it wasn't LeBron who died. day. yeah yeah
0: was, um you would, would yeah you yeah. found an all blacks patch didn't it
3: you found an all blacks patch
0: yeah that i bought the airport there i guess however um, many years ago
3: yeah there are um there, uh, the All Blacks are the New, white New Zealand's libidinal investment in fascism. It, it, it kind of, not everyone, but there, you know, for those those who do have a libidinal investment in fascism, All Blacks are generally the way that you know that that uh, that instinct is vented, because the, the nationalist consciousness is a very, it's quite a perverted thing. It doesn't really make any sense at the end of the day. And it's it's only sustained by uh, symbols and irrational um, irrational grievances. It's it's right. never it's it's almost never sustained by a kind of satisfied self regard. There are always contradictions in it that need to be resolved, and they can only ever be resolved by violence. Right. And uh, which is, I think, probably why Orwell wanted to say that sport was a way of kind of like venting militaristic instincts which I mm-hmm. think is kind of an uns- which, which is probably like a fairly unsophisticated way of looking at it, especially considering World War I and World War II. But I do think there is something to be said for the idea that sports or certain forms of sports is a way of, of, um, of playing out a, you know, a, you know, problematic or, or dark instincts in a, in a way that's you know, relatively
1: safe. Well, especially, and, I mean, rugby, good Lord.
3: Oh, I don't yeah. know. If, it's I don't know if it's the same
1: with the national cricket team that everybody would follow or something, but uh, yeah.
3: Yeah, well, cricket is how you know Indian Indi- Indians and Pakistanis um, <laughs> sort of understand and follow the rivalry between the country. I feel. I mean, I could be wrong. This is now. I, this could just be. You know, I could be sailing close to the wind here. But do do, do, we, do, do you guys feel like that kind of makes sense? Yeah, you know, I really want to go see an India-Pakistan game. I don't
1: know anything about my, cricket. Uh, my my old university had one of its better social events. Was the like Indian and Pakistani students clubs would host the cricket game together, and I always regretted not <laughs> going and hope to go to something like that someday. It's a it's, pretty strong cricket scene around here.
3: That's cool. That's awesome. That's that's uh, that's one of the nice things about immigration. Eh? It um, yeah, just it's just more. It's like it just adds sort of like that sort of stuff to the culture, like slowly but surely. Yeah. It's uh, there. There are nice. There, it's there. There are lots of nice aspects to it. Cricket. Uh, it's cool that um, if cricket gets played more in Canada,
0: I, I
2: Feel question. like that's a good thing because
3: it's a really fun, game.
0: Like I think that with Canada, a lot of the time Canadians feel like we don't really have a national identity in comparison to the U.S. Do you think that 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 the same is true of New Zealand and Australia?
3: Um, it's different with New Zealand. We're so small that it's um. You know, our our national identity is either the All Blacks or wow, we're really punching above our weight. You know, New Zealanders eat up news about in New Zealand are doing well overseas. It is extremely embarrassing, uh, <laughs> I, and that is a Australia being sort of larger and more gregarious. Uh, and yeah, I
1: wouldn't most, know anything about that.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I, I really hate most Australians. I, they're 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 an indolent. Fucking degenerate, lazy, arrogant people. Amen, who, brother. Yeah, who are holding on to a and image that hasn't fucking existed since like the fifties? you know, at the speak 50s, on it earliest. I hate. There, you know.
1: Louder for the people in the back.
3: It's not. It's that's not why I hate Amy Therese. I hate Amy Therese because you know she's just you know a dumb person who thinks she's smart. But being Australian just aggravates that so much.
1: <laughs> it really is, yeah. The cherry on top, icing on the cake, et cetera. Um, yeah, we, uh, I, th- I feel like there's a lot in common between Canada and New Zealand in the sense of, yeah, constant kind of yeah, self-doubt and self-evaluation in terms of easily measurable things to do with uh, yeah. Other uh, real countries, and then kind of, yeah, victory in the one sport that uh, we always win at, that everybody gets uh, invested in as a substitute for uh, <laughs> nationalism that never really had time to percolate and define itself against anything besides uh, the one big other. How yeah, yeah. are
3: Canadians dealing with like the Stanley Cup being won constantly by like, teams from LA?
1: Uh, it's like a constant state of national cope with like uh, <laughs> booing, like booing the commissioner of the NHL who keeps putting teams in deserts where they're more successful and they don't have like a worthless hydrocarbon currency that fluctuates wildly and makes expansion up here difficult. But uh, yeah, that always the excuse is that like a grumble and it's oh well, it's all you know Canadians on the team that won anyway, um, which is often true, but is still uh, is still whining.
3: It's Corp. That is copes.
1: It is absolutely cope, yeah.
3: <laughs> oh, I've got a question. So, the gloves are coming off. You know that that idiom, you know, the gloves, the gloves yeah. are coming off. Is, is that yeah. is that a reference to ice hockey? Yeah, yeah. I think so.
1: The, uh, the gloves I, are I, coming I, off. It's, yeah, ice hockey combat, it's like not like rugby where a brawl breaks out with like a pub or street protest type dynamic. Hockey is like uh, ritualized combat, so both players' gloves have to come off, right? You can't just uh, start slugging that's considered bad form, and so there's this little brief flurry as everybody throws their uh, projective equipment, you know, 10 or 15 feet away, and then they square up. It's, like, more of a samurai thing than a real brawl. I
0: was saying, and they had, like, specific players whose kind of thing is fighting.
1: Yeah, yeah, so let's... let's... Less so these days, but yeah, back in the day, you would have a person who was on the team to be a goon who is not a very good player, but would be assured to, yeah, try to fight anybody who, like, injured your star player on purpose, because that was the other thing that you used to be able to do, and it was uh, really violent. Yeah, you'd have... If you you were, you know, if there was their super fast Russian guy, and you decided to take him out of the game by slashing his ankle or whatever, you can be assured that there would be, like, a lumbering 300-pound gorilla from a small town in northern Manitoba, there to yeah crack your spine over his knee like Bane if you touch the little fast Russian or French guy, and then uh, yeah with with the with the result that's less of a you can't really be a bad player in the league now so there's kind of less and less of the the goon is a is largely an institution of the past by now but you still yeah, another thing uh, that
3: neoliberalism has destroyed
1: yeah it's funny I, when I say that as a
3: joke i only ever say it as a joke to kind of like it, but then uh, most of the time I'm also thinking well that is kind of true
1: yeah absolutely. Hundred percent. Yeah, there's 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 a, there's a war there is a, there is actually a Warren Zevon song about a goon that sounds exactly like a Bruce Springsteen song about the industrialization. Come to think of it, but uh, <laughs> oh man, yeah, you'll have to you, you, that. I, I want to hear it. Yeah, yeah, you bet. But anyway, there's uh, so you get some of that, but every so often you will get an interesting. Most of the fights just happen because somebody's angry or somebody's been hit and somebody takes exception. But every so often you do get a good mic'd up moment of like a, you know, like a good luck man. And then they just throw their gloves to the four winds, and then it's
3: <laughs> yeah. You gotta yeah. have that. You have to have that occasionally, just so it doesn't. So it's um, it's not that it needs to seem more civilized, but there, just like that, there maybe there's more honor in it. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's very much like a ritual. Yeah, it's a uh, it's it's a uh, it's it's like it's like a duel, you know.
3: Yeah, yeah. Whereas in baseball, if you if you threw a you know a fastball at a guy's head, right? Right. No, yeah. It's not. There's no. There's no. Um, you know, the batter isn't going to be like. you know you almost got me (laughs) well Well, right
1: yeah yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. well and also like that's the thing in baseball is the whole team will just fight because there's so many people but in hockey if the whole team fights you don't you fight like a video game and you pair up with somebody and there's there is no it's very rare that you get a brawl everybody finds a partner and dances so to speak with uh, sometimes you actually get the two goalies that will fight each other in center ice sorry
0: what's that one really bad brawl that happened during a basketball game
1: Oh, that was the Malice in the Palace in uh, Detroit in the, the late 90s, I believe, where, yeah, Meta uh, Run Our Test, uh, formerly Run Our Test, now Meta World Peace, uh, jumped into the stadium, jumped into the stands to try to fight somebody who threw a, a full drink at him. And uh, they were all suspended for a very long time.
3: That's really funny. I, I yeah. did not know about
1: that. <laughs> there was a similar incident in a hockey game where uh, something like six or seven members of the Boston Bruins were tired of the abuse being hurled at them by. I want to say Philadelphia fans and the stands above them. So, they, yeah, they, they hopped over the glass, and uh, this guy uh, walked up like up the stands in his skates and took this guy's shoe off and beat him up with it. Oh, <laughs> <those, laughs> the boss <Boston laughs> the 70s. Yeah, one time Ty Domi pulled the guy into the penalty box with him and gave him, like, five or Anyway, yeah, hell <laughs> of a sport.
3: I'm going to watch it. I'm going to stop watching. Uh, I've been convinced. Oh, yeah. I'll be disappointed when it's not constant brawls, though.
0: Oh, uh, Freddie. So is going back to what we were talking about before, but you haven't told us who you would consider a genius.
3: Um, LeBron James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I see. I find that hard. I have to give you an answer because you know it's also a question that. You know, I wanted, you know, I wanted Jim to answer. So I can't cop out and be like, well, you know, I can't really say. I think there are so many different types. <laughs> I value them all. So I'll, I will try and think of one.
0: What about Derek Putin?
3: Derek, Derek Putin is um, a, a genius who, whose genius is genius pilling other people. <laughs> it's, he, he has a, I mean, he has a genius for many things, but the, I think the signature. Skill Derek
1: Putin's signature. like a, uh... Derek Putin's like the Velvet Underground, and that only a uh, hundred people followed him on Twitter. But everybody who did ended up taking their own genius pill. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. The reason why
3: Derek doesn't have more followers is that he's not an insanely aggressive, cynical, nasty person.
1: No, he's <laughs> he, he's the master at the top of the mountain that you have to climb to. Um, yeah, exactly. He wouldn't. He's not. He's not going around looking for disciples at this at this time in his life.
3: I will say, I will try and give a sort of a vaguely serious answer. It's not the, I don't know if, you know, this would be an example of the sort of preeminent genius that maybe we'd we'd think, but Schubert, I think, he's, um, when you listen, it's a a, a very non-analytic genius. It's not like, he's not someone who had the ability to like compute a lot of complex things. But if you listen to his music, there are emotional shifts in there which just do not make any sense at all. i don't I don't have a musical education, so it's hard to describe, but it is the most
1: emotionally
3: bizarre music I've ever heard in my life. And there, there are some in some pieces in particular where you're like, is this is this the syphilis speaking?"
0: Um, I like winter, I saw that.
3: There's a lot. there's There's a particular Schubert string quartet thats uh, it was used in Barry Lyndon.
0: Berylinton
1: is great. It's amazing,
3: isn't
0: it? Yeah. Yeah. One of
1: my and I guess since I should give a serious answer, too, I'll go with Bernini. It's kind of a later Baroque polymath. Oh, I think, uh, yeah. yeah properly embodies somebody who is if would would made of me, th- if I'd yeah, seen him doing what he was able to do at the time, I wouldn't have been, would have uh, rein- reinforced my faith in whatever faith I had, I think. It would, just would have been so apparent that these, uh, these were not his gifts and that it didn't spring from him.
0: Do you think that he's someone that was considered a genius in his time or was he, was it just someone who's very talented at what they did before?
1: Um, Well, like I think, yeah, I'm not I don't think he would have been considered a genius in the modern sense because at the time his, he would have been celebrated. He would have been kind of lionized, but I don't think that since most of his works were religious in nature, especially too, I don't think he would have been, Exalted as a person in the same way that like later later romantic or uh, or modern artists have been as 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 creatives, I think he would have been uh, seen as kind of somewhat more as a craftsman. But uh, yeah, he designed um, the Rape of Prosperpina and the uh, Saint Peter's Square. He designed, and he was kind of the uh, the sculptor for uh, Baroque Rome, I suppose. So I'd uh, I'd say him
3: as a, as as a joke. Can I say Andy Warhol?
2: No. <laughs> No, uh,
3: can you can you understand like, who's who do you think is like the, who do you think epitomizes genius? Like the person who says Andy Warhol, you would be very very fucking suspicious of him, wouldn't you? Bob Marley. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Adolf Hitler is is a, would be a good one to say. It's like he was yep. he was a genius, and you and, and then you, you devote a lot of like intellectual energy to trying to like put put across like an idea of genius, which is completely amoral. And you could succeed probably in doing that, but you've done it in order to try and kind of like secure Adolf Hitler as a, as a genius, which I think would sort of taint the intellectual effort, even if you could successfully come up with like a concept of genius that is completely, completely divorced from any virtue at all. Because um, with, with genius, like the role, like the idea of it being a sort of a, a virtue, I think we're like everyone's a bit ambivalent about it because we're prepared to accept that they're sort of like genius, like a genius might be a very cruel person, but the genius that they have has to be, in some sense, a kind of like a redeeming quality.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wittgenstein is still like celebrated because he's seen as yeah. having contributed, as seen, seen as having contributed yeah. something. You know, like uh, the guy who invented, uh, I think, leaded gasoline was a genius, but yeah. something uh, yeah. that I <laughs> <be> think. <true. laughs>
0: Like Something that I think about with regards to Wittgenstein is like what the people who he taught in the small villages in Austria thought of him. Because there's this man who's enormously wealthy, he's brilliant, and he's coming to your rural village somewhere to yell at your children for two hours a day about math and box their ears when they get questions wrong.
3: They probably were worried that he was a pedophile, honestly, because I don't know if the violence I don't know if the violence was um, would be something that they, people from that period would necessarily object to. I mean, there was a lot of violence in school. I
0: guess they so objected. Surprises to me
1: about that, but that to... then I don't know school discipline. Yeah,
0: they objected to him doing that to the girls because they they thought that girls shouldn't be expected to know arithmetic. They said. Oh.
3: Right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, right. So actually, Wittgenstein was woke. He expected them right.
1: to um, do their math at the risk of physical violence.
3: Yeah, yeah, so you can, you can, I'm, I'm expecting the same out of you as I'm expecting from the boys.
0: There's this funny quote about him in the biography where someone asked him if he believed in women's suffrage, and he said no, because all the women that he knows are idiots.
3: Except Anscombe, as I talked about. <laughs> that should have, that should have shown him that he was wrong. And yeah, Anscombe is an example of a genius. Anscombe is an example of a genius. Um, her, her philosophy is marvelous. You, a good place to start with Anscombe, if, if, you're, if you're into philosophy, um, would be modern moral philosophy. But she also wrote a pamphlet called Mr. Truman's uh, Degree, where she argued uh, against Truman being given an honorary, an honorary doctorate by um, the University of Cambridge. And her argument is that he killed innocent people. But it's not as straightforwardly... It's not a straight. It, it, it,
1: it's. It's. Yeah. Nothing ever ends with these people.
3: Yeah. It's. She was. She was a. You know. Well. She. She was a Wittgenstein a student of Wittgenstein for one, and she converted to Catholicism by this time. So she's. She's trying to. Um. She's. She's pushing two agendas, which are you. you wouldn't necessarily associate with one another. A kind of a Wittgensteinian approach to doing philosophy, and Catholic doctrine. Um. But she's a genius, so you have to take her seriously. <laughs> uh, and her uh, pamphlet against Mr. Tr- uh, Harry Truman being given a degree is a very, very good example of um, polemical but rhetorical philosophical writing. So it's not—it's not meant to be dry and academic. It, it, it can be difficult, but it's—it's it's, it's an interesting example of a philosopher basically making a public statement that is that is influenced by their philosophy, but which isn't a, a piece of analytic work, uh, analytic philosophical work. And she has a very, very sardonic tone. Um, in a lot of places. She's she's a very sarcastic writer, and it's funny because she's very good at it. And uh, anyway, there's a story where um, she was wanting to go into a restaurant and she was wearing um, pantsuits. And the, the maitre d' at the restaurant uh, said that she couldn't come in because they forbade women from entering if they were wearing pants. And so she took off her trousers and then walked in. <laughs> uh, and this is a true. This is a true story, and uh, it is it is it is um, someone who th- who's thinking a lot about rules. You know, the, the, the rules in the way that um, that Wittgenstein was, was wanting to think about rules. But um, she she put her money where her mouth was, so to speak. Um, and there's there's a funny story. Uh, she smoked cigars because one of it one day it, one of her children became extremely ill. And she said, "God." Uh, she she prayed and she sort of made a promise to God. She said that she would she would quit. Um, she she wouldn't ever smoke a cigarette again if um, if her son mm. pulled through. Right. And right. Uh, he did. And um, she missed tobacco, and so she took up cigar smoking.
1: Right. Right. Well, that's yeah. This is this is somebody who could have been such a good lawyer in a different life. Yeah. and Thank God she wasn't. Yes. Just, that's <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: I think we're running on almost. Like over an hour, almost an hour and a half. Yeah. Wanna cut yeah, you,
3: you, you may have to. You can. You, you can. You can cut out the bit where I explain my thesis. <laughs> <That's>, that would. <laughs> that, would uh, that would take a lot out, and it would also stop people from just t- totally, um, you know, tuning out. I think all that uh, needed to be said was said.
0: But thank you for joining us, Freddie. It was great having it was you.
3: Fun. Thanks for having thank me on. I, I had a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it will bother you again at some point to come back on when you're not too busy with creating your LWI or harassing the news race on Twitter.